We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer. Today, healthcare attorney and litigator Brianna Santoli will report on how Medicare Advantage organizations are denying or delaying prior authorization in order to avoid paying claims. Internationally recognized psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick talks about America's mental state of health. We'll also hear the latest coding news from Lori Johnson. Dr. John Zellum adds another entry in his journaling, John M.D. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who's really sorry that his two-buck Chuck wine sells for $3 in your time zone, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Thanks, Clark, very much. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this 517th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, all. Hey, it's been a busy time for CMS. They posted a number of final rules, as you know. Uh, yes, they've been very busy. In fact, you know, in just one day last week, CMS released final payment rules for hospice, rehab, and psychiatric facilities, and yesterday they posted the IPPS final rule. I know. I'm slogging through it now. Also, last Friday, CMS released a final payment rule for skilled nursing facilities. Hmm. Isn't your father in one of those facilities? Uh, actually, he's in an assisted living facility, and he needed assistance finding his AWOL hearing aids in a denture container in his medicine cabinet <laughs> this weekend. Oh, boy. Hey, uh, Erica, what's the subject of your talk back today? I'm going to talk about clinical validation, Chuck. Well, always looking forward to hearing your talk back segment. We have much news to report, and of course, we begin, as we always do, with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Thanks, Chuck. And the final rule, as you said, for Medicare IPPS was released yesterday. As others are commenting on the final rule as a whole, I'm going to focus on one part of the rule that affects a large group, if not the majority of teaching hospitals in the United States. Medicare pays teaching hospitals two separate payments. One payment reimburses hospitals for the direct cost of teaching interns and residents, and that's a component that's addressed in the final rule. On May 17th of 2021, the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia ruled against CMS's method of calculating direct GME payments to teaching hospitals when those hospitals' weighted full-time equivalent FTE counts exceeded their direct GME FTE cap. In the Milton S. Hershey Medical Center et al. versus Becerra, the court ordered CMS to recalculate reimbursement owed, holding that the CMS's regulation impermissibly modified the statutory weighting factors. Per the final rule, the plaintiffs in these consolidated cases alleged that as far back as 2005, the proportional reduction that CMS applied to the weighted FDE count when the weighted FDE count exceeded the FDE cap conflicted with the Medicare statute and it was an arbitrary and capricious exercise of the agency's discretion under the Administrative Procedures Act. So let's break the issue down in an easy way to understand. Medicare limits hospitals to a cap period from 1996, yes, 1996, and counting residents for direct medical education payment. Additionally, Medicare reduces the count of residents that have been residents longer than Medicare expected, only counting them at a 50% rate. The rub is that Medicare applies the cap after taking the 50% reduction for residents that have been in residency longer than Medicare allows. In the extreme, two hospitals could have the same cap, even though one hospital had twice as many residents. In my mind, there's a larger issue here, though. How can hospitals continue to be controlled by a determination from 25 years ago? To all the folks listening from teaching hospitals, contact your reimbursement team and see if a check is in the mail. And with that, back to you, Chuck. 
Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. It's Tuesday, it's August the 2nd, and you're listening to the 517th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Revenue cycle management. It's the world you live in. From the start to the end of the payment cycle, you might be noticing that your processes are not providing the results they once did. Whether it's struggles with staffing, or you're still using ineffective spreadsheet documentation in hopes of getting paid on denials, it's time to be proactive and get in front of the problem. RevKeep Software is an RCM platform that offers provider organizations a complete view of post-payment recovery audit operations and costs. Get the reports and information you need to get paid. RevKeep Software is optimizing your staff and time. How are you reacting to the leaks in your RCM system? Visit RevKeepSoftware.com and find a solution. Now is the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson. And good morning, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica. And hello to our listeners. I have two topics to cover this morning. There are three new CPT codes for monkeypox in the Fiscal Rule 23 IPPS final rule was released yesterday, as Tim had just said. Let's first talk about CPT. The three new CPT codes are 87593, which is for molecular diagnostic testing that detects the nucleic signature of an orthopox virus, including the monkeypox virus. 90611, which is the um, vaccinia smallpox virus vaccine live lysophilized 0.3 milliliters dosage for percutaneous use. And 90622, whoops, I have those reversed. 90622 is the vaccinia smallpox vaccine. 90611 is for the vaccine. It's smallpox and monkeypox attenuated vaccinia virus live, non-replicating, preservative-free, 0.5 milliliter dosage, suspension for subcutaneous use. So those codes are effective immediately. The diagnosis code for monkeypox is B04, and if you're giving the vaccine for monkeypox, assign Z23, which is the encounter for immunization. Now let's move on to the inpatient prospective payment system final rule. It is 2,087 pages. There are no new MSDRGs. The overall relative weight change is negative 5.6737 with 394 relative weight decreases and 371 relative weight increases. The highest um, or the largest relative weight increase is for MSDRG4, the tracheostomy with mechanical ventilation greater than 96 hours or the principal diagnosis except face, mouth, and neck without an OR procedure, and that increase is 1.8092. There are 10 new new technology add-on payments, 15 and TAPs are continued from fiscal year 22, and 25 items were discontinued effective 10-1-2022. 
Remember that the fiscal year 23 ICD-10-CM and PCS codes were released earlier this summer, and it has been a very busy week in the coding world. And Erica, I hope that everyone will listen to our sessions on the new codes and the IPS final role. Back to you. Yes, Lori. We, we have a three-day Ipsapalooza. Um, thank you, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant at Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Erica, thank you very much. And again, Lori Johnson, thank you for an excellent report on today's broadcast. Coming up next, another journal entry from Dr. John Zellum. But first, this important message. Journaling John MD is sponsored by HiTechs, a clinical informatics organization dedicated to bringing the most advanced technology and people to assist healthcare professionals at the point of care and provide proactive workflow assistance to clinical documentation integrity, computer assisted physician documentation, and clinical decision support. All of HiTechs products are integrated into the Epic EHR front end user interface. Find them at HiTechs.com. Here now with our special segment called Journaling John M.D. is the journaling. Dr. John Zalm, good morning, Dr. Zalm. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everybody. The topic today is engaging physicians. And just another reason for a physician advisor, as I found in working with Clinical Revenue Cycle Arena, has taught me a lot about engaging physicians while being a physician advisor. And it's been an enlightening experience. It's so necessary to engage physicians, especially for utilization review, CDI, and sometimes coding. And there are actually regulations that demand that they be included in the decision-making. Over the years, I have found a way to comedically categorize the various behaviors of the responses from physicians when attempts at this engagement from the various components of clinical revenue cycle occur. And I believe that most of you on this call have met several of these different categories. The first is the curmudgeon, which is defined as a bad-tempered, difficult, cantankerous person. I hate to admit it, but that was me. Um, That's part of my dark side from the past, and it was not uncommon for me to say, quote, and what medical school did you go to, end of quote. It usually did not result in a very productive conversation. Number two is the runner. This is the doc who starts walking down the hall and spots a CDS or a UR specialist ahead, And it seems that they're thinking, quote, they want to talk to me, end of quote. So they run off in another direction. I've even even seen them run into the OR, and they weren't even a surgeon. The next number three is the invisible man or woman. This is the doc who makes rounds at 6 a.m. or after 9 p.m. just so they don't have to see a CDS or discuss the case with anyone. Then there's the evader, number four. In today's world of technology with various devices, texting, cell phones, and more ways to communicate, they avoid responding. This type of person is not seen as much in today's environment, yet when it occurs, they do have ways of ignoring calls and texts saying, I never got it. Number five is the sneak. Unfortunately, this is another technique that I ashamedly have to admit to. When I was practicing, a discharge summary was not required for any patient in an observation level of care. If I had a patient as an inpatient, I would write the change to OBS order, then immediately follow it with the discharge the patient, so neither UR nor CDI could catch me and ask why. Number six is the pleaser. Essentially, this is the doc who says that he or she will do what is asked and then goes ahead and does whatever they want to do. Number seven, the collegiate. 
This is the doc where there's actually a great conversation and the information that is needed is provided. Um, electronic, with the advent of the electronic medical record, there have become many easier ways to get their engagement and a response. And number nine, the best success. Probably happens more often than thought, often referred to as query success rate. Today, there are more physician advices around, and they are the ones who may run into similar situations and reactions, but maybe not as often as we used to see years ago. Physicians can't play as many tricks when it is a peer they are talking with. Docs behave better then, but not always. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, John. That was Dr. John Zellum. Dr. Zellum is the founder and CEO of Streamline Solutions Consulting, and he's the physician advisor for Cameron Memorial Community Hospital. Chuck? Thank you both, and a program reminder, you're listening to the 517th Live Edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Attention coding professionals and all HIM professionals. There's an upcoming three-day conference you'll need to attend to remain compliant with the 2023 Inpatient Prospective Payment System. It's the IPS Summit, produced by ICD-10 Monitor. During this exclusive three-day summit, you'll learn about the 2023 changes associated with the IPS, including new ICD-10 CM and PCS codes, plus insights, analysis, and answers to questions. Register now to attend. The sessions begin August 16th and continue the 17th and 18th. That's the annual IPS Summit, produced by ICD-10 Monitor. Register now at the ICD-10 Monitor Bookstore. Hey, there's a lot going on these days uh, that could impact our national mental health. In fact, CMS recently announced to make 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline available nationwide. Joining us now to provide both context and commentary is award-winning psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Good morning, Dr. Moffick. So what is the state of America's collective mental health, and why do you think this is necessary? Okay, Chuck, glad to try to comment on that, and I appreciate Dr. Zellum's uh, descriptions. Um, he didn't include me or those who retired. That was our way of avoiding such conversations. Anyways, July has been a really important mental health month, although one laced by more mentally unhealthy mass shootings. And Shades of an Oedipal Conflict, a big mental health news story, just broke yesterday, so that I'll likely cover it more later in August. A father involved in the Capital One Six invasion and turned in by his son was just sentenced to seven years in prison. It was also National Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, and we still need to be aware that many minorities are more underserved, misdiagnosed, and misserved. Then there is another wave of COVID infection with all its mental health repercussions and conflicts, and new medical students walked out on their white coat ceremony at Michigan, and more. Oof. As you mentioned, though, our focus needs to be on the new suicide lifeline that began in the middle of the month. The federal government in 2020 decided it was needed for several reasons. One, the regular 9-11 crisis hotline tends to involve the police by its very widespread nature and potential risks of harm, not infrequently in situations where mental health professionals are more appropriate. Two, though there has been much evidence of helpful outcomes for using it, the specific national suicide 10-digit number was obviously hard to remember and even to dial in an emergency. 
three, the brutal killing of George Floyd in May 2020 by police in Minnesota received national attention and increasing concern of police involvement in black crises. By the time of its emergence, the new suicide lifeline was expanded to be called the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline with a 988 number. I don't know why those numbers were chosen, but they are easy to remember. Adding crisis to the title is intended to make clear that the number can be used for other mental health crises, including homicidal, psychosis, and lack of self-care. Indeed, when we think of the missed opportunities for getting help for so many of the eventual perpetrators of mass shootings, this number would be easy and appropriate to call now. In the first couple of weeks, the calls has increased by about 50%. No drastic problems or missteps were reported that I know of. So what's not to like? Not surprisingly for such a new national endeavor, there are concerns, including how will we know when the public is familiar enough with using this new number? Can enough new operators of diverse cultural competence be effectively trained? Are there enough follow-up services in the community, especially in rural areas? Will the police not be called when they are really needed? Research suggests that callers want to feel safe and understood when they call such lifelines, as do family members. We do know that since suicides are often impulsive, an intervention of concern and caring can reduce impulsivity and the suicide risk and thereby literally be a life force. Though the promise is there, time and research will tell how well the new suicide and crisis lifeline is working. We will do some follow-up on that and the father-son capital invasion conflict in future presentations. Back to you, Erica. Thank you, Steve. That was internationally recognized psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you again, Dr. Moffick. Uh, by the way, Dr. Moffick is also the Talk Ten Tuesday resident psychiatrist. You might be aware, of course, that some Medicare Advantage organizations are delaying or denying claims in order to preserve profits. This in spite of correct code reporting in the medical record, as if they were kind of like sabotaging the work of coders and clinical documentation integrity specialists. Well, here now with more on that subject is healthcare attorney and litigator Brianna Santoli. Good morning, Brianna. What do we need to know about this unfair practice? Good morning, Chuck. It's great to be back on Talk 10 Tuesdays. So the Office of the Inspector General acknowledges that the capitated payment model used in Medicare Advantage creates potential incentive for Medicare Advantage organizations, or MAOs for short, to deny beneficiary access to services and deny payments to providers as a method to increase profits. In light of that concern, the OIG conducts periodic reviews of MAOs. Recently, the OIG released a report finding that Medicare Advantage organizations often delay or deny services from medically necessary care, even when a prior authorization request meets coverage rules. Specifically, the OIG discovered that 13% of prior authorization denials were for claims that met Medicare coverage rules and that 18% of payment denials were for claims that met Medicare coverage rules and MAO billing rules. The OAG found that MAOs denied prior authorization and payment requests that met these Medicare coverage rules by using MAO clinical criteria that are not contained in the coverage rules. For example, requiring an X-ray before approving more advanced imaging. The OIG also found that MAOs were requesting additional documentation 
for prior authorization requests. The MAOs indicated that some of the requests did not have enough documentation, but the OIG's reviewers found that the beneficiary medical records already in the case file were in fact sufficient to support the medical necessity of the services. The OIG's review also revealed that MAOs were making manual review errors and system errors that led to denials of medically necessary care. Denying requests that meet Medicare coverage rules may prevent or delay beneficiaries from receiving medically necessary care. Not to mention, the denials can also burden providers. The OIG found that even though some of the denials reviewed were ultimately reversed by the Medicare Advantage organizations, the denials still created delays and placed an administrative burden on beneficiaries, providers, and the MAOs themselves. Among the healthcare services involved in the denials that met Medicare coverage rules were advanced imaging services, such as MRIs, stays in post-acute facilities, such as inpatient rehabilitation facilities, and injections. As a result of the review, the OIG recommended that CMS, one, issue new guidance on the appropriate use of MAO clinical criteria in medical necessity reviews, that is, require that MAO clinical criteria not be more restrictive than the Medicare coverage rules. Two, update its audit protocols and auditor training materials to address the issues identified in the report, such as MAO's use of clinical criteria and unnecessary requests for additional supporting documentation. And three, direct MAOs to take steps to identify and address vulnerabilities that can lead to manual review errors and system errors. Namely, the OIG recommended that CMS work with MAOs to ensure that any changes affecting coverage or payment are properly coded in their systems and that MAOs consider additional staff training on document verification. CMS concurred with all three of the OIG's recommendations, so I expect that we will see new guidance released soon. So that's what you need to know on that front, and back to you, Erica. Thanks, Brianna. That was Brianna Santoli. Brianna is a litigator at the law firm Kelly, Dry, and Warren, LLP. Now is the time for a very popular segment here at Dr. Ntusi, and it's called Talk Back. And it features our very own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thanks, Chuck. Last week, I participated in the American College of Physician Advisors CDI Town Hall. And our um, topic was clinical validation. And if you missed it, I recommend you go to our website, acpadvisors.org. And when the recording is available in a few weeks, um, click on it and check it out. Uh, It's free. Um, When we hold these town halls, we encourage attendees to submit questions when they register. We try to incorporate as many of them as we can, depending on the topic. I got to introduce the topic of clinical validation and thought it would make a good talkback segment. Historically, coding denials were based on DRG validation and whether the codes and sequencing were accurate. The question the auditor asked was, was the encounter coded correctly? This type of denial still crops up, but the denials which torture CDCs and physician advisors alike are clinical validation denials. CV denials address whether a condition documented in the record and coded 
was actually present. Do the clinical indicators seem to support the diagnosis? The recovery audit, audit co contractor statement of work from 2011 posits that, quote, clinical validation is beyond the scope of DRG coding validation and the skills of a certified coder. This type of review can only be performed by a clinician or may be performed by a clinician with approved coding credentials, close quote. Don't get misled. This is for the RACs, not institutions. Your organization can allow anyone they think is competent to handle CV denials, clinician or not. The reality is that the only one who can adjudicate whether a condition is truly present is the clinician caring for the patient. However, for our purposes, we are going to think of clinical validation as the act of questioning. It's a process, and there are four basic elements. Recognition of potential concern, what to do concurrently vis-a-vis -vis CV querying, what to do retrospectively in response to a CV denial, and how to prevent future CV issues with feedback and education. The CDI professional or specialist or coder, and I'm just going to refer to this generically as a CDIS, if reviewing concurrently, should recognize there is potential clinical validation problems. This requires them to be knowledgeable about CDI conditions and understand how to interpret clinical indicators. Often, the physician advisor is recruited to assist in CV activities. They may help determine whether the concern is legitimate, whether they think there is a clinical validation issue. The question is who needs attention and or education, the CDIS because they didn't appreciate the clinical support, or the provider whose clinical practice or documentation is eliciting the question. Concurrently, if the condition seems to not be valid or inadequately support, supported, a CV query is in order. Clear, well-designed query templates edited wisely can be most effective. If a CV denial is levied, the person handling it must judge whether they think the denial is legitimate. If the denial seems warranted, let the money go and educate the provider to avert future issues. If the condition seems valid, fight the denial. If the condition did not seem to be present or the documentation was weak, the provider should be informed and guided as to how to improve their documentation to tell the story accurately. The last step is tracking and trending to determine where educational efforts will be most fruitful to prevent future CV queries and denials. If an organization has the bandwidth, feedback to providers is always productive. They don't know any of this is occurring unless someone tells them. The focus of feedback can be the blueprint for future education. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. For more details, please see my article in ICD-10 Monitor. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. We have a, uh, a time for a couple of questions to be answered, and Lori Johnson are going to ask you if you could repeat the new ICD-10 codes that, was re that were released in the IPPS yesterday. I believe it's the CPT codes. They were not in IPPS. Um, that's, a, that's a whole other topic. But the, the new codes that were released uh, late last week are 87593, which is molecular diagnostic testing, 
that detects the nucleic signature of the orthopox virus, including monkeypox. The other CPT codes are for vaccines, and it's 90622, vaccinia, smallpox virus vaccine, live, lyophilized, 0.3 milliliter dosage for percutaneous use, in 90611, smallpox and monkeypox vaccine attenuated vicinia virus, live, non-replicating, preservative-free, 0.5 milliliter dosage suspension for subcutaneous use. Those are the three new codes. Very good, and we thank you, Laura Johnson, very much for uh, repeating those codes for us, and uh, we appreciate it. Uh, by the way, uh, we did have a question uh, from a lady by the name of Darla. She wanted to know how to, can I get access to Dr. Reamer's article. And uh, Darla, the response to your question is it is in today's ICD-10 monitor, so you can get her article there. And thank you very much. That's going to be a wrap for our 517th live edition Talk 10 Tuesday. I want to thank our panelists today. Lori Johnson, whom you just heard, Tim Powell, Dr. H. Stephen Moffitt, Dr. John Sellen, Brianna Santoli, who reported our lead story this morning on Medicare Advantage plans. And a special thanks again to my co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, folks, you can listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, Google Play. When you do rate us, give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Thanks, everybody, and have a great week. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.